0: I'm Ben, the executive director and co-founder of 3,000 Hours, and today I'm talking to Ben West, who's the co-founder of Health e Filings, um, a tech startup, and he's pledged to give all of his income above minimum wage to charity. And today we're going to be talking about what led him into that decision, um, how he thought it through and what he's learned so far from doing that. So Ben, yeah, tell us a bit about how you first found out about 80,000 Hours and Effective Altruism.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and thanks so much for having me today. So when I was younger, I had read some of Peter Sink's work, and I kind of knew a little bit about the basic concepts, but. It wasn't until I happened to have seen a link to 80,000 Hours on Robin Hanson's blog, Overcoming Bias, that I found out about the whole EA community. And I remember I I saw this link on Overcoming Bias, and this is like four or five years ago, so the site looked very different than it does now. But I pulled up 80,000 Hours and like, wow, that's really cool. Um, I was really excited that there were other people who were into, I guess, what is now called effective altruism. But I had just never met anyone before who considered giving and, you know, improving the world to be an important part of their life. So it was really exciting for me.
0: Cool, yeah. What were you planning to do with your career at that point?
1: Yeah, I... So I didn't really have plans um I had never really considered that like I should use advanced techniques like planning or thinking ahead or <laughs> anything like that so i at that time, I was working as a software developer, and I kind of vaguely planned to keep doing that um and you know i did i did have some i was giving away a fair amount of money at that time, but it never really occurred to me like basically any of the stuff a d k talks about about how you can. Uh, without putting too much work into it, have your career be a lot, a lot more optimal.
0: So yeah, were you um, already giving money from the writings of from like Peter Singer's writings?
1: Yeah, and I think it's it's kind of weird in some ways. Eighty thousand hours maybe even decreased my donations a little bit because I had I had kind of taken a naive reading of Peter Singer's stuff, and it's like, okay, well, if you're buying this, I don't know, this car, instead of donating that money, that's like, you know, killing someone, which is really bad, so you shouldn't buy luxury items. And so I was doing that to some extent. Um, But then the obvious rejoinder is like, well, if you're using that car to get to work, then like, maybe you would have made a lot more money that you could have donated by having that car, right?
0: Okay, so so you begin to think the more long-term. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And were you? Um, did you? Did you know about GiveWell at that point? Were you? Were you giving to GiveWell recommended charities?
1: No. At that time, I think I was probably giving to uh, New Harvest, which is this
0: tissue engineering meat. Uh, mm, that's profit. cool. And yeah, did you? I and mean, then, where did it? Wh- at what point did you find out about GiveWell as well?
1: That's a good question. I I'm not sure. I mean, I've never been super motivated by poverty things. Um, so it was probably whenever I went to like an EA summit or something that maybe just being involved in the EA community in general. I heard about GiveWell. Okay, cool.
0: And uh, yeah, what so. You were a software engineer at that point, and were you working in the health sector?
1: Yeah, so before starting this company, I spent about a decade at this very large healthcare IT company, which I think was in some ways very good. You know, it it enabled me to get a lot of the career capital that I'm finding valuable today.
0: Hmm. Yeah, do you think you would um, yeah, would you have done a similar thing um before like becoming a software engineer um as your first career even you'd known about all of the eighty thousand hours that is to before huh
1: That's an interesting question i yeah, I'm not sure. I definitely kind of fell into it and then like, maybe retro-justified it a little bit with some of uh, the K stuff. I I don't know. It's a good question.
0: Yeah, it's it can be hard to think through, like, exactly what gone through your mind at that point. So, yeah, how did you... What led you from uh, being an employee as a software engineer to thinking about uh, going out and founding something new instead.
1: Yeah, so that that was, like, very, very clearly ADK. I am super risk-averse by nature. I wouldn't have no, you know, I never really considered seriously starting a company. And so reading the ADK's original research on that, and then, uh, you know, to be... I. I because I'm so risk-averse, I was a little maybe against it unfairly. I had some motivated cognition. And so also talking with Carl Schulman, who did a lot of the original research into startups for ADK, I think a combination of talking with him and just reading the published things were um, very convincing and really, you know, 99-plus percent of the cause for the decision.
0: Mm, what were some of the what were some of the things you learned that were most important in your decision?
1: yeah well, so the financial impact seems still seems to be pretty strong, and it was definitely a large factor at that point so just to some context i if you believe my company's current valuation, my last year. I made something like twenty times what I was making as a manager at this relatively well paid IT company. So you know Well yeah, improvement is like very clearly a good thing, right? Like Yeah. And and um, and, and I guess there you know, there's some other things like the you do get some broader things that I did. Um, you know, even if I'm interviewing someone, I'm following a very set up interview HR template, you know, so and I'm not working with salespeople or people who aren't developers. So I do think some of those some of that breadth has been pretty valuable as well.
0: And um, so okay, so you found these ideas um, and, like, some of the arguments why you might be able to earn more uh, founding your own company and that could uh, mean you could donate more. Um, it's quite a big step from hearing those ideas actually going through with it. Um, what what kind of steps were there between, like, first the first thought, like, oh, maybe this would be a better option for me to actually going into it?
1: Yeah, it was a it was a very long process. You know, I like I said, this isn't something I had considered before, so it was a huge, a huge change for me. And I I had a whole bunch of vacation days saved up, so I decided that I would take a a weekend Wednesday, so for like two or three months, just every Wednesday, I took a day off and thought about startups, research startups. Um, and I think maybe more than. Anything like just the psychology of willing being willing to take that risk it's uh, it's very hard you know it wasn't a system too rational thing. it was just kind of being prepared for the uh the problems I would face, or at least feeling as though I would be prepared for the problems that I would face that made me
0: comfortable enough to start it and so what what let you gain that confidence was just spend, you know, really doing your homework on what this would involve and what might determine success and that got you to a position where you could be comfortable taking the risk?
1: Yeah, well, so, you know, when you tell this story in hindsight, it sounds super rational and well thought out and, like, I clearly planned to do this and then that, but, of course, that's not how it happened, right? Like, I did a bunch of stupid things and then some of them worked out and it helped, right? And particularly talking with Carl, you know, I I had a lot of ideas which were pretty stupid about the pros and cons of entrepreneurship. And he, and also I think Brian Tomasek, who's another EA, they both kind of called me out on my stupid ideas. And that was very helpful in making me realize, like, yeah, entrepreneurship probably is, is a good
0: idea, at least to try out. Do you want to talk about what some of the one one or two examples of the stupid ideas? <laughs> oh
1: well so one of the problems you face with entrepreneurship is or at least in figuring out if entrepreneurship is a good idea for you is there isn't like a very clear reference class. you want to know how likely am I to be successful, but even even if you try to define Start-ups. You would say, like, how likely is the average startup founder successful? You kind of, it's really hard to define that because you could look at all self-employed people, but the vast majority of self-employed people are, like, running a restaurant or, I don't know, they're a self-employed construction worker or something. So it's just, like, not the sort of thing that you mean whenever you say startup. Um, and similarly, you can look at people who got venture capital backing, but by the time you get VC backing, you're already, like, better, doing better than a huge fraction of startup founders. So anyway, if you, there are ways of interpreting this data, which makes it seem that entrepreneurship is a really bad idea. Like, a lot of people start their own companies just because they hate their boss and want to be in charge of everything, and they're okay taking a financial hit for it. So, of course, if you include those people, Financially, startups are a really bad idea. Um, but, you know, of course, that's probably not the correct reference class to use.
0: Yeah, we've um, we've struggled with communicating this a bit because, I mean, I think, like you say, actually self-employed people on average are less than um, people in full-time employment. So if you use that reference class, it looks worse. And if you look at something like all startups in general, which is, like, really hard to define, then it still does look like the average payoff is very high just because so few make it to exit. Um, right. And then, yeah, by the time you get to venture capital or getting into Y Combinator, maybe it's looking like something like uh, five or ten times what you might earn as an employee. Um, but it's very hard to know what your chance of getting into that stage is. So there's this kind of middle area. Right. Um, and so, yeah, what we've been recommending people is to just think of like, they instead ask the question, is it worth me experimenting with entrepreneurship to basically learn whether I have potential to maybe like get into a, y- a, a VC-funded startup or get into Y Computer? But not assume that it's actually going to be high running for them until they've got some, some reasonable evidence that they could get into one of those better reference classes.
1: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me.
0: Um. Yeah. Cool. And so, basically, you you were thinking, um. Yeah. What I mean, what led you to think that? you'd likely have higher expected earnings even taking into account the the pretty high chances of failure. Um.
1: Yeah, and this... It's a good question, and this is something that I think my thinking has changed on since starting a company. Um, I don't think I fully appreciated before how hard it is to raise money, and so... Like I think the very first 80K post on this was using all people who've received venture capital as like the reference class, and yeah. that if you use that, like entrepreneurship is phenomenal. Like it's just a clear slam dunk. Like you're gonna make I think you said five or ten times more. Um, and so I think I hadn't fully appreciated that just how unrepresentative that reference class might be. And of course, it turned out fine because I, you know, am VC funded. So it, I guess, it's like in retrospect, it was a <laughs> reference class to use. But like, if I had to go back in time, I'm not sure I would have made that same decision.
0: Mm, yeah. So, what was the, what did you do in the stage in between starting the company and getting the VC funding? Um, like, were you just thinking very much in terms of I'm gonna like experiment with this for a certain amount of time, and like you know, if that that's like worth kind of investing this time in the experiment, um, or yeah. you know, did you just think you had like you had enough savings that you could uh, spend a year or two on this, and it would that would be worth it?
1: Yeah. So I talked to some other startup people. Um, one thing I would recommend in terms of that, like, uh, System 2 kind of subconscious, feeling comfortable, is going to a co-working space or, you know, incubator or somewhere where there's a lot of other people who are doing startups just because, whatever, we're all social animals and it helps to you know, to be around other people and realize, like, okay, this is something that people can actually do. Um, but anyway, so I was going to these co-working spaces and talking to other people and, they there was kind of this impression that, okay, in healthcare, you know, if you can get a beta customer by about six months, you're maybe doing pretty good. And if it takes you over a year, you know, you might want to try something else because it seems like this idea isn't going to work out for you. Okay. So I kind of used those timelines and said, all right, well, let's give it a year. By then, I'll know what sort of traction I have, and, you know, maybe it'll work out,
0: maybe it won't. Okay and so you learned about those types of rules of thumb from um being at a co-working space and talking to other people in the startup scene. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's um before we go on talk a bit about what the company actually does.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So as I think anyone who looks at the American healthcare system will see this fundamental disconnects between how we pay doctors and how we really want to, in that doctors get paid the more people they treat, which means that if their patients are sicker, they're going to end up getting paid more. Um, and obviously there's no, I don't think there's any overt malice in any physician's behavior, but it, is, it would be kind of nice if we could pay physicians based on kind of how healthy they keep their patients rather than on how sick they are. So the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, created some regulations that move us towards this, these new um, compensation models, and that sounds really great. But the in order to comply with this, there's a whole bunch of regulatory paperwork you have to fill out. So compliance rates are very low, even though the Affordable Care Act is kind of saying, "Hey, if you're a doctor who's doing well, you can get more money just by showing us that you're doing well. It, it turns out that people weren't willing to participate just because there's so much paperwork. Mm-hmm. So that's where our software comes in. We are kind of analogous to TurboTax in that we extract data that people have already entered, format mm-hmm. it, do all the stuff according to the regulations, and then submit it to the government so that physicians are able to you know, get this money, avoid regulatory headaches, stuff like that.
0: Cool. And so, basically, if they need to fill out this um, bit of paperwork, uh, you automate a lot of the process for them.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: And, yeah, I mean, do, do you have an estimate of, like, how much time or money that, like, saves the typical doctor on doing paperwork?
1: Yeah, so... For the average doctor they're gonna end up making about eighteen thousand dollars per year
0: by using our software. Okay, and normally Yeah, how how long would it normally how much time do you save them on the on the paperwork?
1: Sure, so generally it'll take people about forty hours to do this paperwork. Um, but you know, so there's definitely the time savings, but there's also uh, there's also the risk that you'll make an error. Right, it's very complicated regulation. A large fraction mm. of people who try to submit this don't actually do it correctly. So I think even more than the time savings,
0: we lower the risk for a lot of people. Cool, yeah, and yeah. How much? Um, what kind of traction and money raised have you had so far?
1: Yeah, so one of the things which convinced me to stick with this a little bit more is I had mentioned that getting a customer within six months was considered good by the healthcare startup community, and we were able to get our first customer within, I think, about three months. And it was a small practice, and you know, in terms of, obviously, my equivalent hourly rate, I was making like two cents an hour or something, <laughs> but getting, getting that first customer is a really big deal for any startup. So we've been continuing to grow, and I think in June or July, we raised a million-dollar round to help us continue that growth. Cool.
0: And, um, yeah, can you say how many doctors you have using the platform now?
1: Good question. I'm not entirely sure the number of doctors, but I think the number of patients we're covering is into the six figures now. Hundred thousand plus.
0: Wow, that's very cool. Um Yeah, when I remember in the early days there of the company you got a bunch of uh, help from people, our community, um, with making some of your first sales. What what was the story with that? Yeah, the the EA
1: community yeah. I'm not entirely sure the reasons for this, but there seems to be an over-representation of entrepreneurs in it. So it was really valuable for me to work with them on a whole bunch of things. I mean, just like basic pitching stuff I received a bunch of help with and some of the idea behind sales strategies. And this EA named uh, Alex Foster, who's been helping me with a lot of this stuff, kind of did some back-of-the-napkin calculations and was like, well, look, if we, even if cold calling has a really low success percentage, we're still making a lot of money, sort of on expectation. So we sent out this call for EAs who will be willing to do some cold calling and receive a commission for that. And there was just this, like, absurd, Response that uh, things like fifty people or something, yeah, sounds good. And just started doing God knows how many (laughs) phone calls. Um, It was kind of crazy.
0: And that helped get the like get the first sales off the ground.
1: Yeah. So I mean, we had a couple of sales at that point, but um, it, I don't know. It was it was kind of. I'm not sure that the immediate financial impact was super crucial. Um, mm-hmm. Cold calling is always, yeah, I think that most people who start on a telemarketing campaign do it with the understanding that, you know, it's going to take a while and it's going to be not something that's guaranteed to pay off. Um, so yeah, I, I think that the important piece is that's just one piece of a broader story of how the EA community has been extremely helpful
0: in this process makes sense um, yeah and I think around the same time you applied to Y Combinator um, and yeah was what well, the what was the story with with that and how that turned out?
1: Yeah, so I applied to YC and um, they flew me down to Mountain View, um, got to go through uh, what was probably the most intense 10-minute interview of my life. <laughs> and the their thinking at that time I was the only employee. The company was just me. And their thinking was that it was just going to be very hard for me to run the company by myself. Um, YC in general dislikes solo founders, and I think that's a fair criticism. But the irony of it is that I decided I brought on a business partner, Robert, and he had just come off having sold his last company, which was his fourth startup with exits. You know, he was very well connected in all these spaces. He had a lot of the expertise that YC would have. provided and so the irony is okay now that I've got this business partner which was YC's kind of requirement for coming back um, <laughs> it's YC isn't as useful anymore so we made the decision not to apply again uh, even though we had right. a guaranteed interview slot and I you know hindsight will maybe prove this wrong but at least so far I think that was the correct decision
0: Yeah, how did – so it sounds like meeting Robert was also a very important step. Um, How did that happen?
1: Yeah, so I uh, I met him through some venture capitalists uh, who – so even though I wasn't raising it at the time, I was talking to people for the purposes of finding a business partner. And, you know, obviously VCs, a huge part of their job is just networking and knowing people. So a couple of these people knew that Robert was coming out of his earnout period, was looking for something next to do, and we got connected. Um, And, yeah, started working together probably a couple months later.
0: Okay. And, yeah, with – do you think if that hadn't happened, you would have – persisted even though YC turned you down?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, YC is, like, really good at turning people down, right? You, like, in terms of rejection letters, theirs are definitely in the top 10%. And, you know, believe me, as a startup founder, I get rejected a lot, so I have become a connoisseur and can tell you a good rejection. I, I think I probably would have persisted, um... It would have been a very different company if I had ended up working either by myself or with someone who had maybe a little bit more stereotypical YC founder background of, you know, a few years of business experience, but not that much. And we may very well have made the decision to go to YC, and, you know, it just would have been a completely different trajectory. Mm. Um,
0: yeah. What's... On your current trajectory, it's fine if you don't want to say this, but how much do you think you might end up um, donating at least in expectation value? Obviously, it's very risky.
1: Yeah, I. well, so it, I, th- I think it's pretty hard. One thing you can look at is just to look at how... Of founders who have exited before, how likely are they to exit, and so Robert has exited before, and you know we can use that as a comparison class, and it seems like maybe you have i don't know a fifty or sixty percent chance of success, something like that mm-hmm. so you can take that likelihood and use some financial projections at which case you know you're talking about probably somewhere between i don't know. Ten to fifty million, something like that. Wow,
0: that and that would be from your. That would be from. Is the is is Robert planning for the next uh, Well,
1: I mean, he's a very nice guy, but he's not. He's not in EA. air.
0: Mm. Um. Yeah, let's talk a bit about um, some of the lessons you've learned from. Um. Founding the startup, and uh, I guess maybe the first thing is like I know beforehand you you did a huge amount of reading about startups, and we already talked about one of the one of the things, just like which reference class to think of yourself in as being in. Were, were there any other kind of big things that came out uh, to you from doing all that research?
1: Sure, so, in terms of just the research like uh like we've both said, I think the major thing you learned from the academic research on startups is that the academic research on startups is kind of crappy, but it definitely does seem like people systematically make attribution errors, and you know even very experienced v c s will value the team a lot more than market conditions or things like that. The one very concrete piece of advice is to look for a market or an industry that's growing. And like healthcare right now, obviously there's been a lot of government regulations that are putting a bunch of money into it. Um, and the other the other academic thing that seems to be surprising to people is just in terms of who should be an entrepreneur. A lot of people, particularly with tech entrepreneurship, a lot of people will say, like, well, you know, I'm an okay programmer, but if I'm going to create this, you know, world-changing product, I would need to be this fantastic programmer. Um, And it doesn't seem like that's super true. Like, it seems like if you are this fantastic, amazing programmer, then probably what you should do is program. You'll just make more money that way. And the sort of person who's... And
0: work at, like, a large company.
1: Right, yeah. And people for whom it makes sense to start a company are the people who are, like, kind of mediocre at everything, right? Like, they can make... Well-rounded. ...the software, yeah. You know, they can get the sale or two. Um, because if you don't have that well-rounded experience, okay, you'll create a great product, and then you can't sell it. Or, you know, you won't be able to handle the administrative aspects, you know, handles of running a company. Um, so that seems to be fairly surprising to people, and it, it does seem that there's some academic
0: evidence backing that theory. Yeah, that makes sense. And so, yeah, what did you learn, like, more practically from actually going through it yourself?
1: Sure. So uh, I guess there are a few things. One is that I feel everything about startups is fat-tailed. So I think probably all your listeners Understand that with the financial financial aspects of startups, there's this small probability you'll make a lot of money and a large probability you'll make you know, very little. Um, but all the things that you want to get out of the startup seem to be to be very highly correlated. That you know if you're successful, then you're just going to be you know you're going to have more networking opportunities. You're going to be able to hire better people and learn from them. You're going to better be able to advocate for changes at the policy level, things like that. Um, And so I think maybe my original thinking on this was, okay, I won't make a lot of money if this startup goes poorly, but at least I'll gain valuable experience or something. And I don't think that was the correct way of thinking about it. I think, you know, what actually happens is if you have a bad startup where you're just constantly working out of your basement and, you know, have no customers and stuff, that's probably all around going to be a
0: worse experience than if you had stayed at a big company. Um Yeah, and we wrote about we wrote about this on the on the blog a bit. So when we first started promoting entrepreneurship we presented it as like a good way to uh gain career capital as well, but then I I'm more now inclined towards your position where it is good career capital if you succeed, but the like eighty, ninety percent chance is that the startup doesn't really go anywhere. And right. In those cases, like, I mean, maybe it's similar to being uh, an employee, or maybe it's, like, a little bit worse in some some ways. Right.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, so another thing that you have mentioned before, but I feel that people don't pay enough attention to, I think you've actually mentioned that you feel people don't pay enough attention to, is with career capital, the value of exceptional achievements. Because a lot of times, like just to take one example, I was talking to this investor, and he asked how how is our technology going to scale to more users. So I answered like, "Well, we have this horizontally scalable architecture, blah, blah blah." And I'm explaining the technology, and he's just giving me this blank look. And so I'm like, "Oh crap, I don't know what to say now." And so I keep throwing out these tech buzzwords, hoping that like he'll pick up on one of them. Um, but he just keeps giving me this blank look, and so I'm thinking you know, why, why did you ask this tech question if you're not going to understand the answer, right? I didn't get what he was going for. And then eventually I kind of got my feet under me and I was like, well, I'm the architect of this of America's most widely used healthcare analytics platform It's used by almost every major healthcare organization in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I've done this thing of growing it from a small thing to a, a big thing before and I, I'm confident I can do it again. And he, you know, of course breaks into a smile and is like, oh, okay, I get that. Great. And this is like a very common occurrence where people will have like very little understanding of what exactly it is that I do and very little interest in learning it. So I have ten seconds to explain, you know, why you should care about me.
0: Mm. And just having what normally does it in that case is just some concrete things you've done in the past they're impressive.
1: Right, yeah. Or, like, I'm on these various government committees, which sometimes impresses people
0: and things like that. Mm. Yeah, just another thing I've been thinking about with career capital starts as well, which they, a point which YC makes in their How to Start a Startup Lecture is, like, there's quite a lot of lock-in. So, like, the average time to exit is, like, about seven years. Um and it's quite hard to leave the startup if you're a founder um, before then, because the startup will probably collapse if you leave. And that will piss off all the people who, like, funded you and and came to work for you unless the startup failed. Um, and so that's not doesn't sound like that good a way of building career capital necessarily as to tie yourself to something for, in expectation, seven years. Um, with, and then, like, it's hard to pivot into something else that, that whole time. Right. Like, yeah, and I think if you just want to learn skills, probably makes more sense just to go and work as an early employee with someone really good, and then you can just do that for a few years and at any point you go into your own startup or do something else.
1: Yeah, that definitely seems to be true, and um, I do think it is it is one argument for being an early-stage employee, because maybe you'll have the opportunity to put in a few years and then you can leave, but be like, oh, I created this this system which is, you know, however many hundreds of millions in revenue are used by this many people or whatever.
0: Yeah, H- what have you learned about how to actually come up with um, startup ideas? So, like, there's one kind of school of thought which I see I'm most keen on is like the idea that you don't like deliberately try to come up with startup ideas. It's more like one day you stumble across a problem that you think is really impre- like really pressing, and then you like realize that founding a company is the best way to solve that problem, and so that's what you do, and that's what drives you into it, rather than the other approach where you're kind of like, well, I guess like. I'd like to start a startup because I think I can earn more money. Like now, I'll like just go and try and think of a startup idea and like go through loads of different ideas and um, test them out. Like, which? Um, how, how did the approach work for you? And did did that change your views on how how people should do it in the future?
1: Yeah. Well, so I I did the second thing. Um, independent of the question of what should i have done i didn't have to do the, the way of like deciding okay i'm going to start a company and then step two figure out what the company is actually going to be um, i i definitely agree with a lot of the viewpoint that you shouldn't just sit in your chair and like stroke your chin and think of like oh here's a great idea because that's not going to work and you know other people aren't going to agree with you that's a great idea you definitely do have to go out there and try to sell it and see what people say. But I do think, for example, I mentioned earlier, the industry you are in has a huge influence on whether you'll be successful. And Uh if that industry grows, then you're probably going to do much better. So if you look at, like, YC has lists of industries or types of startups they'd like to see. Um, A lot of other VCs do, you know, Gardner and these other things make market forecasts, or you can look at government. Like I think anyone who pays attention to politics or the news realizes that healthcare is changing a lot in America, and so it's a reasonable guess that there's money to be made there. Um, so that is one like very concrete way of coming up with maybe not a startup idea, but like a class of startup ideas is looking at the industry and trying to choose from that.
0: Mm, and and you, although you uh, did just, did take the approach of just wanting to start a company and then trying to figure out the idea, um, and you chose to focus on healthcare, healthcare was also an industry where you had a lot of experience, so were probably better able to identify, uh, in, like, a pressing problem that um, other people might not easily be out to solve.
1: Yeah, yeah. So maybe one interpretation of this is that I'm just retro-justifying my existing choice and, like, explaining why I did the correct thing. Um, but definitely with something like healthcare, like, there's no way I could have started this company if I didn't already have the relevant experience. Like, I, you know, I sit on the committee that created these regulations and it that those advantages would just you know, they're what made this company possible. Um, so I, I think it is... Yeah.
0: Yeah. I guess what I was... So what I was driving at is that in a way you took approach which was, like, a bit in in between the two where you ended up with a lot of experience in this industry and then you said, okay, now, like, within this industry that I know really well, what are the... what might be the top couple of startup ideas and then focused on one. Um Rather than just starting as a as a college grad and trying to think of a startup idea
1: right, yeah, exactly. I think it would be i think it's much much harder to start straight out of college um, because you're competing with everyone else who you know
0: has a college degree yeah, so if you were if you were doing your career again and wanted to get into startups again, then you'd still take the approach of working as a software engineer in, in one of these fast-growing industries for a couple of years first.
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm very skeptical of the, the career capital that actually starting a company provides, and I would definitely agree that working for a big company or even a small company um, can be a much more valuable experience than starting a company.
0: Yeah, maybe, so we did already cover why the co-capital's a bit worse than it looks earlier, but then the the thing it does seem to have a, in its in its advantage is uh, potentially learning a lot, and particularly all-rounder type skill set, because you have to basically do everything yourself under quite a lot of pressure. Um, do you think there's much truth in that, or that you'll like learn more useful skills? working in a larger company?
1: Yeah, it's, it's a very good question. I definitely think you will gain a more rounded set of experiences. But one of the weird things you can look at is, what's the success rate like for second-time founders versus first-time founders? And if founding a company teaches you a lot, you would think that the second-time success rate would be way higher but it doesn't really seem to be. Like, there's a slight advantage, but it's not huge. Um, and so maybe you can just say, well, startups are really noisy, you know, the data set isn't good enough. But it's, like, it's very disconcerting, right? Like, yeah, you have people who are spending seven years of their lives, on average, trying to do something, and they're no better off for it. And, like, there's a lot of people like that. Um,
0: yeah, and maybe... I mean, it could be that they learn some skills, but then having one failure on your record makes it harder in other ways the second time around. So then, like, overall you're not much better off. But yeah. um, overall it's still not um, not great. So, I mean, yeah. from the inside, it does seem surprising given that, like, you do – it seems like you do just, like, learn about, like, product development. You learn about how to raise money. um you just kind of, like, learn how to, like, manage yourself and all these things uh, feel very useful. Um, It's almost incredible to think that it, like, doesn't change the odds of success that much.
1: Right. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, one explanation here, which I think every single person I've talked to has hated, but I'm kind of partial to, is that skills just aren't super relevant for starting a company. Right? Like maybe there's some amount of skillfulness you need to be in order to start a good company, but after that, it's some like it's 90% luck or something. Um, so you do learn additional skills, but they just aren't helpful.
0: Well, I mean, I remember Sam Altman saying once that like a startup, what determines success is like quality of product times quality of team times like quality of market or something like that, and then times a uh, buck factor, which is, like, weighted at 1,000 <laughs> 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 compared to the other ones. Um, so you can get, like, a small edge by, like, doing everything well. But
1: Yeah, I would believe that. Um, cool,
0: yeah. So was there, um, yeah, you guys... Um, You guys are hiring at the minute. Did you want to just... Yeah, yeah Yeah, do you just want to say a bit about who you're looking for?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So we're hiring three types of people right now. The first is uh, mid to senior level software developers. We have a and we're looking for people who have experience with web development to come on board. We are also looking for project managers to help us manage a lot of the integration work and onboarding of new clients. And then we are also looking for salespeople. And we are a remote company, so remote works for us. If you just go to healthefilings.com, hopefully we can provide a link in the notes to this recording. You should see the career stuff there, and I'd love to chat with you, especially if you're an EA.
0: Awesome. Yeah, was there anything else you wanted to say before we wrap up?
1: Uh, oh, yeah. So one last thing. I feel like every single time I talk to someone about startups, they ask me this, so I want to address it uh, because I think it's actually in your career summary of tech entrepreneurship as well, is... number of hours people work, there's this view that if you're an entrepreneur, you just have to be working all the time, and like maybe there's definitely truth to that, but I feel like people who are successful in any field are working a lot of the time anyway, and it's not clear to me. My experience is that entrepreneurs don't work that much harder than like people who are successful in software or finance or, I don't know, law or something, most like that. Uh, I just wanted to quickly throw that out there that, yes, you will have to work hard, but probably most people who are focusing on their careers in the way ADK suggests will also be working hard, so that probably isn't a huge factor for most listeners.
0: Okay, awesome. Let's uh, wrap up there, and thanks so much for joining us.
1: Yeah, thank you, man.